Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. What's up? Hello, my friends. It's Lindsay and Krista. How we feeling? How you guys doing? <laughs> I was thinking about when I was younger, my mom used to always... <laughs> we'd be like me and my sister, you know, when you're your kids, you just say, you talk to each other and say crazy stuff. We'd mm-hmm. answer the phone and be like, we'd be like, where are you at? You know, you're whatever. We'd be like, where are you at? And my mom would always like whisper. She's like, where are you? So I was thinking about when I'm just talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, how much she would like correct what I'm saying. I mean, how much did parents just correct? Like how, what's the percentage of time that parents were correcting what we were saying? My mom correct. We used to, I mean, I used to want to flip out when she'd be like, you said like 40 times when you just spoke. Which actually, I get it. I kind of get it now. You know, I get it. I get it because when I hear someone else say like a million times, I'm like, whoa, that was distracting. Yes. <laughs> I don't notice it anymore, but I've if someone says it, they're like, do you hear my, how much they say like? And then it's game over. Then I'm done. I know. Then I'm and completely I'm sure, done. I still say it. I definitely do. Oh, 100%. It's less. <laughs> yes. And how much I used to, I used to cuss just to like be a rebel. Totally. What was your favorite cuss word when you were younger? I don't like to even cuss now. It's weird. I don't like to cuss now, but I don't know if I had a favorite, but I just would definitely let her rip. But I wouldn't let her up to my parents and only maybe once or twice. And yeah. I learned my lesson. Oh yeah, I would I would never. I loved crap, even though that's not a bad that's curse definitely word. Definitely not a cuss word. <laughs> that's definitely like not one, a cuss one word. One that you could say without being like it was like a cool thing yeah. to say, like crap. Oh crap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I used to nanny the little boy that I used to nanny, he was like walking on the road and he was like, damn it. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> what was that? And he was like, it's what my dad says all the time. I'm like, okay. <laughs> they just parrot every single thing you say. But it's been interesting with cussing, just how my mom used to be like, oh, she used to freak out anytime I would cuss for years. And now I'm like, oh, I kind of get it because I don't love to cuss anymore, even though I, I do cuss. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like it's lessened. Yes. We used to we used to curse a lot. I used to curse a lot at the beginning of the podcast. Well, I wonder what I said. But now it's weird because now when I cuss, it kind of stops me in my tracks. Like, I'll be like, what the heck? Like, well, I'll be, I'll just say, what the F? And, and I, I don't feel, it, I, I just, there's a, a resistance to it. Yeah. It almost has like yeah. a catch. Yeah. It has mm-hmm. like a catch on the tire. And I'm like, oh, wow. Because it definitely is an energy when you say a curse For word out sure. loud and enunciate it. But I do say it a lot. I don't know. It's weird. Anyways. Depends on the mood. Cussing. Today we're clean. Today we're clean. <laughs> we're clean. Non-explicit for this Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, who knows? We um, probably, there's no way. And there's no way we get away with not being explicit. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation today. It's a topic that a lot of you have shared with us that you'd love to talk more about on the show, which is fertility and pregnancy. And um, I think this is a really unique one. Dr. Cleopatra is joining us today. She is the fertility strategist and executive director of the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. And one, she is an absolute doll and angel angel on earth, but we focused a lot on the primester. So we're not necessarily talking about the pregnancy itself, but the time leading up to Mm -hmm. the pregnancy. Yeah, and Dr. Cleopatra shows, she's a scientist, she's a university professor, 
uh, professor. She's been specializing in fertility and pregnancy for years and years. And she is actually the first woman of color on the board at USC, which is incredibly powerful. So she is a very seasoned person. I love that she brings so much science into this conversation about fertility. I felt like it was like riddled with facts and information, but also a lot of heart. Um, So we talked a lot about the trimester and we talked about um, how really you can prepare yourself best if you would like to have kids. And I think it was really beautiful. She breaks down a fertility myth and talks a lot about how um, infertility is a really popular word and phrase that people use quite often. I think people have had a lot of issues with fertility, you know, that we know of in the past couple years. And so she really breaks down what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And we talk about um, the fact that we have the power to change the genes that we pass down to our babies and grandbabies. And I don't know if that if those facts and that science and that narrative is being shared with women and mm-hmm. and given to women to empower them because I just, yeah, I was like really blown away with the lifestyle changes, the nutrition, just so many aspects of the primester period that could truly affect the way that uh, your baby develops and really who they become on a DNA level. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating. Because you can't change your DNA, but you can change the way your epigenome, so the Mm -hmm. way that it's expressed. And there was a beautiful marrying of spirituality and science here. And I really realized in this conversation, and it's something that's been coming up for me recently, just how nervous I am to try and conceive. You know, I'm not, not wanting to conceive right now, but I do feel like it's such a big undertaking. Mm-hmm. And to see so many mothers go through challenges with pregnancy and having kids, I just have been really thinking about how much it changes your life and how impactful it can be. And it's been something that I've been really ruminating on lately is, wow, the power of motherhood and the power of the journey. I just It's hard to describe, but I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. And I think too, it's it's interesting with what we do and the topics of conversation that we have around like our body for ourselves and we're having like body conversations and then it's like, oh my God, I, you know, if you want to have children or are hoping to have children, it's like that conversation of, oh, and this body to create another being. It's like a whole other, yeah, a whole other stage of of thoughts and consideration that Yes, is overwhelming, but I also think that you know what I love about this conversation is just the rem- the reminder and the remembering of women that our bodies are really, really incredible and made to do this. However, there are some things in our current lifestyle and just you know how we live our lives in 2021 that um, might not be supporting the development in the most uh, optimal way. So yeah, I, I relate, but I just, I think it's it's so much a coming back to ourselves of like the innate power that our mm-hmm. bodies have to do this. Yeah, that was actually, she changed my life when she said, she's like, you know, when I had my kids, I became more of myself. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. And it's been interesting that I've had so many expanders of women in my life that are mothers that have, come in recently, just like Dr. Cleopatra, Kimberly Snyder, you know, Laura Elliott, just really beautiful women that I know, Crystal Streets, that have children and that have completely, like she said, become more of themselves mm-hmm. through the process. 
And yes. so I've been so lucky to be expanded by, you know, these beautiful moms and really just helping me to like taper that fear of motherhood. Yeah. And Dr. Cleopatra is a mom herself. She has three beautiful super children. babies, <laughs> super babies as she calls them. And yeah, she's really trying to help people have their super baby. And it's not that these babies are better than other babies, but it's really just a nod to that care and attention given to the trimester and how that can affect the baby. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this is a timely one for you guys. If you know anyone that's struggling with fertility, infertility, if you know people that are trying to get pregnant or you want to share this with anyone that finds science of the body really interesting or epigenetics, I think this is a perfect one. Dr. Cleopatra is not only interesting, but she's really fun and funny and engaging. And she's just so seasoned in the space. So she's a perfect person for us to learn from. Truly. You can learn more at fertilitypregnancy.org and you can follow her at the same on Instagram as well. Dr. Cleopatra, thank you so much. Sending you love and we will see you all on the other side. Yeah, and if you want to watch this beauty in real time, you can go to YouTube, Almost 30 Podcast, almost30.com for everything Almost 30. We have really exciting things happening and coming out. So make sure you're subscribed to the pod. We'll see you on the other side. Enjoy this one. Dr. Cleopatra here in the house. We've been waiting for this one. You would not believe the response we got when we asked our community if they had any questions about women's health, fertility, you know, preparing to have a baby. It was unbelievable. So I know this is going to be just incredible. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here with you all. So, I can't so wait excited. for these questions from your beautiful community. I feel like you're like your name being Cleopatra, you're very much like Cleopatra energy. <laughs> do you feel like that? I do. And a question that I've received my entire life is did you grow into a Cleopatra or were you actually named that at birth? Were you just like that at birth? And I guess my dad picked the right name for me. He held it. We were introduced (laughs) to you from Danica Brescia, a dear friend. Love her so much. Love her so much. We don't get a lot of, like when we get referrals from dear friends, we always know that it's like, going to be a good one. And we knew it was going to be a good one. But then we started just doing research and looking into your stuff and seeing that a lot of, the way that you feel about, I guess, fertility and kids and hormones was aligned with, you know, what we were thinking too. And Mm -hmm. we haven't actually talked a lot about some of the things that we're going to talk about today. So it's just perfect timing. And we're so so glad glad. to have you. I'm so excited to be here. And I know your story just really Mm -hmm. deeply informed the work that you do today. Would you mind sharing that? I don't mind sharing at all. I lost my mother at birth. My beautiful mother was so young. She was only 27 years old. And by the time I was five or six, I was so aware and so clear that reproduction is one of the most important things that we could ever experience in life. And that it was my job on this earth to help to ensure that reproduction can go well for as many people as humanly possible. And I have never looked back. I did this work informally as a child, literally started observing and helping where I could. And then a month after my 18th birthday, I started college at the University of Miami. I went straight into a pregnancy laboratory and have been doing this work formally ever since, which is now over 24 and a half years. So more than half my life. Wow. Yeah. 
How has it evolved? Because I feel like now I I don't know if I'm the age of when people are having kids, but I feel like fertility is talked about so much. And I don't know if people didn't talk about it when I was younger or I was also not interested in fertility, mm-hmm. but I feel like it is such a a very popular topic right now. And a lot of people struggle. It is a popular topic. So my work certainly has evolved, but I would say that my work it was very revolutionary and cutting edge, especially back then. This was 1996 when I started this work. And when I started thinking about what is now the Primester Protocol, and I know we're going to talk about the Primester so people understand that word, I was, I meant for it to be for everybody, for normative fertility, for normative pregnancy. I never meant to become an expert in fertility challenges. What I knew is that if we took advantage of this time before getting pregnant, that everything else that came after it would be much easier and much healthier and from an epigenetic perspective and otherwise. And so that work was really revolutionary back then. It still is today, but it there's definitely more of an understanding about fertility today and that this part of our lives warrants attention and preparation like any other important part of our lives. If you think about it, there's nothing else in society that we value tremendously that we don't prepare for. And there's really nothing more important that we do in or with our lives than have children if we decide to have them. Yet we put more energy into deciding on our major or preparing for the LSAT or planning our wardrobe or our outfit for a special event and planning our wedding why would we not do at least that much, put in at least that much effort and attention to something that lasts forever? Um, What have you found, at least from like what I've heard, is that, yes, there's a lot more instances of having trouble getting pregnant. Has it increased over time? And what do you think or what have you found to be the causes of that? Such an important question. So I want to differentiate something really critical, which is the difference between fertility challenges and the difference between infertility or true sterility. So we hear a lot about fertility challenges and we often hear them talked about as infertility. But at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute, we never use the word infertility because we know from the scientific data, the epidemiological and cross-national data, that there are actually very few people in the world who are truly infertile. That number is about 2% plus or minus 1%. So on the high end, that estimate is about 3% of the human population is truly sterile. So there are a lot of people walking around today, right now, with the diagnosis and label of infertile. And the issue with that is that they it becomes internalized. It becomes an aspect of someone's identity. It becomes a definition of what is or isn't possible for someone. And what we understand from our work and from the larger scientific literature is that there are a lot of people experiencing conditions of subfertility, especially related to age but also related to other things like polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis. And yet 
that for most people, that is a temporary experience that they are not truly infertile. They're experiencing fertility challenges and those challenges can be overcome. Mm -hmm. So it is true that fertility challenges are on the rise. And this is in both males and females. And I'm going to talk about two genders specifically here only because we have scientific data on the two genders. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are other genders and we don't have a lot of data Mm -hmm. on people who identify as something other than male or female. Mm -hmm. So this is relevant to both males and females. And actually, male sperm count has dropped by more than 50% in the past 40 years. Wow. So we we place a lot of attention and I would say blame on women and Mm -hmm. females for fertility challenges and when a couple is having difficulty conceiving. But it's really important to understand that fertility challenges are equally likely to reside in the male, the female, and at the couple level. And then about 10% are unexplained fertility challenges. So 30% female, 30% male, Mm. 30% couple level, and then 10% unexplained fertility challenges. Couple level would mean like their egg and the sperm together. It's really interesting. That's a great question. So what couple level fertility challenges means is that there's something about the way the two people combine that creates conditions of subfertility. So it might be that either person on their own would have with partnered with somebody else, never would have experienced fertility challenges. But the way the two people come together, whether it's the way the, the sperm and the egg are a mismatch or whatever it may be, the way they come together creates conditions of subfertility. Mm. Do you think that, I guess, what, and what are your best predictions for why you think men's testosterone has gone down? It's a, it's a really important question. So the short answer to this is that there's a mismatch between our modern lives, our mm-hmm. modern lifestyles, and the way that our human biology and our reproductive biology evolved. So that's what's creating the problem with both male and female fertility. So we see this huge decline in, in sperm counts happening, and especially in the wealthy Western world. We have less data about other places in the world. And we also see fertility challenges on the rise in females females as well. And we know that it's largely due to the mismatch between our biology and how we live today. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking about the specifics about how we live today. So like stress, I'm also thinking about uh, an episode that we did on like light hygiene. Yeah, yes, we're, I think in, light. we're in front of blue screens light. all the time. I think it's blue light. I think it's sitting all day, <laughs> cutting off blood circulation. Phones in pockets. Phones in pockets. <laughs> I think, and this is all not obviously. And then I think the birth control in our water there's like affecting men's testosterone. What else affects men's testosterone? Hmm. Ladies, you clearly, I mean, <laughs> you've, you've, you've gotten a lot of the We're answers done. right there. Yes. yes. So, and actually, Diet? I don't know the way, the way that we eat, the kinds of foods we're eating, the toxic exposures in the environment. Mm. So what we have to remember is that our fertility is an epigenetic process. 
Meaning, what is, yeah, what yeah. is an epigenetics? Yes. Okay. So epigenetics literally translates into above genetics. And it's way, it's the way our genes express themselves. So we're born with the genes we're always going to have. We cannot change our genes. But what we can change is how our, our genes express themselves. Mm-hmm. So think about your genes as a light switch, and the light switch has a dimmer. So what can you do with that light switch? You can flip it on or off. And you can also dial the dimmer up or down. We can do the same thing with our gene expression. That's called our epigenetics or our epigenetic expression. So our fertility system in general is an epigenetic process. And then more specific aspects of our fertility system, like our sperm health, our egg health, our hormone balance, our uterine health, those are also epigenetic processes. So just because we're experiencing fertility challenges at one point doesn't mean that we will continue to experience them. And what is happening with fertility in general and these rates of fertility challenges increasing is this epigenetic process that all of these inputs from our modern life are adversely affecting how our genes express themselves and how that affects our fertility and the health of our children and our grandchildren as well. We know that the process of epigenetic inheritance, that's where this epigenetic expression gets passed down across generations, crosses at least two generations from the scientific data we know as of now. And we think it's probably much more, many more generations than that. So let me give you an example of this. There was a study in mice where male mice received an electric shock and they paired the electric shock with the scent of cherry blossoms. So every time the scent of cherry blossom was introduced to the mice, they got shocked. And after repeated experiences with this, the male mice came to fear the scent of cherry blossom. So they then mated the mice. And the the pups and grand pups of these mice had a fear of the scent of cherry blossom, even though they had never experienced the pairing of the shock with the scent of the cherry blossom. That was an epigenetic expression that got passed down intergenerationally. Wow. Wow. I'm crying thinking about mice being shocked. (laughs) I literally have problems. I know. It's really tough. I I just, yeah. I'm crying thinking about mice being I'm shot. sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. <laughs> I have issues. I'll take a pause. <laughs> I need help. Um, how quickly How quickly can that gene expression improve? Like, does it take years? Or can we, if we focus on 100%, it could change quickly? It can change really quickly. And I also want to say, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm literally. It's hard. I could never have been the one to do the animal studies. So I completely understand that. I do studies on human beings, on human animals. <laughs> <laughs> We don't shock anyone, I promise. <laughs> and uh, we, I also want to note that our our microbiome is mm-hmm. our second genome, mm-hmm. or we should think of it as our second genome. Both our epigenome and our microbiome can change very quickly. but And that's both the good and the bad news. So what that means is that if we're experiencing conditions of subfertility or we're experiencing fertility mm-hmm. challenges, there's a lot we can do to move the needle really quickly, but we have to keep up those positive epigenetic inputs because it can just as quickly go back to where it was. I think the, and besides me crying about it, but I think the <laughs> my study is interesting too, because it's like the smell is sensory. Yes. And the reaction is like, so this isn't like they're being fed something and they're remembering to that it's good or nourishing. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's a sensory experience where they're seeing that. And then the 
there's a negative input that's happening physically. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering about how that affects people over time. You know, like when they have a negative experience with something that's like sensory, that could even pass in generationally. So if, yes. you know, maybe your parents, the dad smoked and then he was also abusive. Mm-hmm. It's like you could have the scent of smoke happening where it's triggering you in ways in which you don't even realize are really problematic. Mm-hmm. And I do know a lot of, uh, a few friends, not a lot. I know a few friends that have very interesting it's almost like a, it's not a tick, but I don't know how else to describe it, where it's like this thing really weirds them out or bothers them, or it's very gross and they don't know how to explain it. Mm-hmm. And how often that would, I don't know, just how that like uh, leads into culture and society of people where we have these things and it's just expressed and we don't know why. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So, so much of what's automatic in our behavior is inherited or it's an abduct adaptation to something that we experience frequently and that we carry with us even though even though it may no longer be needed or may no longer be adaptive our beliefs are like yes. that our our mannerisms can be like that as well i think i think it's really interesting that you pointed out the sensory aspect so remember that the sensory aspect also creates an mm. imprint on our dna and in our biology through our physiological reaction to that sensory input. Is it input. in the amygdala? That, that's part of it. The yeah. amygdala is our brain's alarm system. So if somebody experiences a lot of anxiety, they may be someone who ha- tends toward a very active amygdala. And it's so interesting because the amygdala is also involved in reproduction. The central nervous system is principally involved in both safety and in reproduction. And that is one of the primary reasons why when we live in a constant state of fight or flight or freeze of of sympathetic activation, activation of the sympathetic nervous system, that it can be much harder to get and stay pregnant because in the parasympathetic, you are in rest and digest and repair and creation. And those two things can oppose one another. So when we're living in fight or flight, what happens is that reproduction gets put on the back burner. We know this very intuitively in other aspects of our rest and repair system. So our digestion, we know that when we're stressed, we're more likely to have a stomach ache or stomach troubles. We know that when we're stressed, our immunity becomes compromised. We're more likely to catch a cold. It's the same kind of thing with our reproduction, but this isn't something that we talk about enough. And all of those examples that you all gave about what's different about our modern life are activating us Mm -hmm. and keeping us in many ways in a state of awakeness, alertness, and readiness and and fight or flight in some cases as well. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, to that point, to being in that state, and we've seen, you know, in the past, in 2020 especially, there's people of different races that are more often in that state because of the life Yes. the way that our, our society is structured. Mm-hmm. So is, do we find that the data around fertility for different races also yes. is shown? 
Yeah. So this is something that's really important to me. I'm obviously a woman of color and my mother was obviously a woman of color. Also, my parents were new Americans and my mother's death was preventable and she likely would, would have, would still be alive today if her life had been valued differently. And so obviously diversity and equity and inclusion and centering the experiences of all women and all children and all families is one of the most important things to us at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. It's our number one core value actually at FPI. And one, I love this question so much because we know that there are these very popular and powerful stereotypes of fertility in people and populations of color. So we're all familiar with popular stereotypes of hyper-fertile Latinas and hyper-fertile African-American and Black women. And there's there was a 2016 study that showed that even medical residents endorse the belief that African-Americans are more fertile than their white counterparts. The reality is that African-Americans are more likely, almost twice as likely to experience fertility challenges. They are half as likely to receive fertility treatment and they are less likely to succeed in fertility treatment when they do receive fertility treatment. Mm-hmm. So the it is showing up in their bodies and there's an incredible scientist named Arlene Geronimus and she put forth something called the weathering hypothesis, which is essentially that the stresses that we experience in our everyday lives lives are create this wear and tear on our bodies and that certain populations like African American women and other women of color and also socioeconomically disadvantaged women experience more of that weathering more of that wear and tear because of the unique stressors and social stressors stressors that they're facing and that this shows up in their reproductive system and if you think about it it makes perfect sense because the reproductive system is the first system in the body to age mm. wow aging by I guess, what does aging mean? Aging means that the system has been taxed over and over Mm -hmm. again and is no longer as flexible in its ability to bounce back. So that can be at the cellular level, the mitochondrial level, the level of our organs, the level of our hormones and the balance between our sex and our stress hormones. There are these intricate feedback loops Mm -hmm. between our psychology Mm -hmm. and our fertility and in the balance of our sex and stress hormones. So basically the body's ability to bounce back and regain its equilibrium. Mm. And what have you done at the Institute to kind of, you know, focus on this discrepancy and make more of these treatments available? Because I can imagine what I know of fertility treatments yes, um, or therapy is that it's expensive. Super yes. expensive. So I don't know. Yes. And also, you know, healthy food is expensive and self-care treatments can be expensive. And so, yeah, yes. I'm just wondering how, how do we fix that? Yes. It's a big, big question. One that we are working on tackling every single day. These treatments our fertility treatments are expensive. Like you said, healthy food, self-care, those things are expensive. They also require having a lot of time and autonomy. So 
It's much easier to engage in self-care when you're not having to sit in a specific place to do your work all day. You have more control over your environment and how you're moving in your environment. That is so critical and we have to keep these things in mind. So number one, we the Primester Protocol, which is our system that we help we use to help people overcome fertility challenges and make their super babies, which I can I, I can define in just a moment, is a, a nominal fee compared to fertility treatments. And we want everybody to be primestering, not just people who are experiencing fertility challenges. And we can talk about why everyone wants to be primestering, not just if they're experiencing fertility challenges. So that's number one, just keeping the virtual program as low in cost as humanly possible. And we work really hard to do that. We also have a Bliss and Change scholarship and we give away scholarships every single year. And that's really important to us. We There are a lot of things in the Primester protocol that you can do for free. And then there are other things that you can do that are of higher cost. So you do what you can based on the resources that you have available to you. Because the last thing that we want people to do is to engage in something that's going to add more stress to the system. Our our foundational mantra is as many moments of every day as humanly possible. Step out of stress, step out of emergency, step out of trauma, and step into your peace and your pleasure and your self-love. That's really where your passion is. And I think that people hear the word pleasure and they think it sounds frivolous or it sounds cute, but it sounds very optional, right? It's like, I'm I'm busy, I'm working mm-hmm. here, or I'm trying to make a baby over here. Don't talk to me about pleasure. But really we need to treat pleasure as if our fertility depends on it because it does. And one of the reasons why it does is because our pleasure and especially our physical pleasure is one of the most direct pathways out of stress and out of emergency and out of trauma, especially traumas that are from the past that are intergenerational, like the sensory trauma that we talked about in the, the study or in the example that you gave of a father who's smoking and or uh, abusive. I think that's that was the example. Mm-hmm. What is, um, I'd love to talk about primestering and super babies. Yes. yes. Oh my God. I can't help smile. When I, <laughs> no. when I say super babies, I automatically get yes. this huge smile on my face. So let me define super babies because, and I want to make sure that nobody takes the term to mean that one person's baby is better than the other or that we're designing babies over here because we absolutely aren't doing that. So essentially, remember that I said that our fertility is an epigenetic process and that we pass down our epigenome through epigenetic inheritance. So when we take the time to primester, then we're also taking the time to make our super babies, which just means having the healthiest, happiest, brightest, most well-adjusted baby we can possibly have given our genes and our epigenome and that of the other person providing DNA for our super babies and also our super grandbabies because we know that we're passing this down across two generations at least. Whoa. Okay. So what what does the protocol at a high level look like and how far in advance should people be starting this? Such good questions. Okay. So at a high level, we 
we conceptualize fertility as a complex network. So you can think about the neural network in the brain. If you've seen images of that or a cell phone network, your fertility is the same thing. It doesn't just reside in your hormone balance or your ovaries or your uterus. It is literally a network of all of your systems and all of the inputs to those systems. So we represent that network as the fertility pyramid and it has five levels. So at the base is the psychosexual level that has to do with our psychology, our sexuality, our sensuality. And it's the base of the pyramid for a very good reason. And then the next level is bioecological. So that has to do with our physiology and also the environmental context. So that that environmental context is a really important source of, of epigenetic information, those epigenetic inputs. And then the third level is neuroimmunological, having to do with the brain and the immune system. And what's so important about this is that we're talking about both arms of immunity, both immunity and autoimmunity. And we know that autoimmune conditions are on the rise and they're especially common in women and they have important implications for fertility and for the health of our babies and and subsequent generations. And then at the top of the pyramid are the social and cultural levels. And we really give this importance because of centering the experiences of all women and families, but also because no matter who we are, even if we're of the majority culture, we have an individual culture, a family of origin culture. We have a professional culture in which we are indoctrinated. I mean, I'm I'm a tenured professor at the University of Southern California, and I had three babies within the span of five years on the tenure clock. Nobody does that. That is like such a no-no in the world of academia. And so those messages that we get from each of those layers of our Mm. social network and our cultural network become embedded in our biology too. And at some level affect how, how excited we are, how about becoming pregnant, becoming mamas, how fearful we are, what's going to happen to our career and our competitive edge. How are we going to be able to do everything if we're already scrambling to keep up with everything? All of those things really matter. So we're addressing all of them as well as intergenerational traumas and what we call intergenerational bliss, the good stuff that gets to be passed down, which Mm -hmm. is one of our primary goals to make sure that we that intergenerational traumas are stopping with us and that we're passing down the bliss. And I wanted that so much for my own super babies. Um, Our daughter, she's our middle, is her name is Sultana Bliss. So Sultana means Mm -hmm. empress and then she's our empress bliss. And to me, I, I look at her and she's just so blissful, like so blissed out in this world. And I feel so thankful that despite my beginnings, and what my mother went through and my my hubby had equally difficult circumstances that we have been able to very consciously produce these human beings who are so at home in the world. And I, I really couldn't be more in appreciation or more more proud of that. It's really, I've, I feel very proud of a lot of things I've been able to do in this life, but it's really the best thing I've ever done. Mm. And what does that work look like, you know, for for that trauma so that you do not pass pass it on? 
Such a good question. So one of the places to start is we do a primester genealogy and we go through our relatives and we get really clear about what were the messages, whether spoken or unspoken, that we absorbed from them about the value of having children, about how easy or hard fertility is, how pleasant or unpleasant pregnancy is, how scary or serene pregnancy is or giving birth is, how much we get to be ourselves once we have our children out in the world Mm -hmm. with us or how much we feel like we sacrifice ourselves. Those are Those are hugely important. So that's a a really good place to start. Get really clear about that. And anywhere where you see beliefs that aren't serving you, that you don't want to carry on in in your mind and in your epigenome, in your biology, that you don't want to pass down, we we hold those fears and we pass them down on some level. I mean, we saw that in the the study that mm-hmm. made you cry that I mm-hmm. won't mention again, but we that we do, we hold those things. And so starting there and getting really clear and honest, it doesn't mean that whomever passed them down to us is a bad person or that we blame them or anything like that. We are we are so not about we believe that our parents did the best they could with the tools and resources and and information that they had. And we honor and accept them for doing the best that they could in their circumstances. And now that we know better and we can do better, we do that. Does it take, you know, besides that pulling back, it's like once you've realized the pattern, you know, so say the pattern is my, my mom had a really hard time with her pregnancy and she felt really uncomfortable and then there was postpartum, say that was your story. I guess then in therapy, is that sort of reintegrated or, or how, how does someone do that? Like getting down to brass tacks? Yes. I think it's just about understanding that, getting clear about what the experience was and, and what you attach that experience to in your mind. Because mm-hmm. remember, we're making these associations as we're observing them, usually when we're very young and we don't have the language or understanding. So the attachments or coupling becomes very, very distorted in many cases. So understanding what was there, understanding what was real, seeing what was really there. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. Then understanding what associations came about from what was there and where we were in our developmental process. And then being able to understand why that was different or similar for what what's relevant to you mm-hmm. today. So there may be aspects of your life that are similar to your mother's and there may be aspects that are different. For example, I remember uh, a really good friend, Dr. Melissa Peterson, who's an epigenetics expert, and I were having a conversation with a group of our mamas at FPI who are primestering. And she used me as an example. And she said, Dr. Cleopatra could have had this association that pregnancy and childbirth are terrifying and that really could have affected her fertility or her pregnancy outcomes or her birth outcomes. But through doing, it never crossed my mind to have those fears amazingly enough. And I think it's because this is the work that I do and I started doing Mm -hmm. this work so early in my life. And I understood my mother was a new American. My mother didn't have health insurance. My mother didn't speak English. My mother 
probably didn't have anyone there to advocate for her. She, my mother didn't have formal education. There were so, there were so many factors. And I know that my situation is so different that I know how to advocate for myself, that I know how to write a really lovely, friendly letter and say, I'm so excited to be here birthing my baby. This is what I would love to see happen in an ideal circumstance. Thank you for being on my side. You know, Mm -hmm. I go in educated and ready, but not on not on a, an, a stance of of thinking that they won't be on my side. I take the approach that I know you're here to be on my side. I know you're here to help me have a beautiful experience of giving birth to my precious super baby. Let's do this, right? And I have this beautiful hubby who's my best friend in the world and he's right there with me. And I have all my siblings in the waiting room and And it's just a a completely different experience of life. And for me, pregnancy, I'm addicted to it. Giving birth, I'm addicted (laughs) to it. All my super babies are born in the month of March within two weeks of each other. I plan that. I can tell you how you plan that. It's a specific piece of the trimester protocol. So every spring, my body craves to give birth. Like this spring, my body's going crazy. Like <laughs> yes. where's my, where's my super baby? Like, uh, because I love it so much. I love the process of pregnancy. I, I mean, I like the process of conceiving mm-hmm. too. I like the process mm-hmm. of pregnancy, love giving birth. I love postpartum. And I feel like with each of my super babies, I've become even more of myself, not less of myself. Mm-hmm. And I love being myself. And so I crave more and more because it feels so good. And and obviously my mother's experience was completely different. And I hope that my daughter's experience will be like mine and even better, mm-hmm. even more blissful. Because that's what we all want, that our children have even better lives than we get to have. Totally. I, I know that a lot of women out there who, who are listening, um, who are either pregnant, getting pregnant, or... Um, have had a child have a different experience, yes. you know? And um, I'm curious, like related to the primestering, does the primestering make the, or potentially make the pregnancy easier, that first trimester easier? Does it affect the likelihood of postpartum? Like how far does it stretch? Yes. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And that's exactly why I focused on the primester. When I went into the lab and I started trying to identify where are the places where we can make the most impact in everything that's going to come after, it's during the primester that we have the most plasticity. Our fertility systems have plasticity, like the brain has plasticity. And starting with the primester, setting up that epigenetic foundation so that our fertility is ignited so that we get pregnant quickly and easily also changes our epigenome such that the pregnancy is easier, the birth is easier, the postpartum period is easier, our super babies are healthier. And so everything thereafter gets easier. So we really want people, and remember initially when I started developing and testing the trimester, it was for normative fertility and normative pregnancy. And it was to ensure that pregnancy was healthy and pregnancy outcomes were healthy and that the baby was healthy. So we want everybody to be primestering whether they're having fertility challenges or not so that they can set up this this domino effect that we want to see, this healthy domino effect for their pregnancy, their entire mommy or parenting life cycle, as we call it. And then also 
for the health and longevity and fertility of their super babies and super grandbabies because that epigenetic foundation is also setting up how healthy mentally and physically our children and grandchildren will be and also how long they are likely to live and how fertile they will be. So, you know, today for the first time, we are seeing declines in life expectancy. And the reason why we're seeing declines in life expectancy is because of epidemics like obesity and the type 2 diabetes, type 3 diabetes, which is dementia. Heart disease. Heart disease, exactly. All of these degenerative diseases that are considered to be diseases of aging, but are becoming more and more common and people are experiencing them earlier and earlier in life. First thing to know is that those are on a continuum starting early in life. I have presented to the, lit- the literature type F diabetes, F for fertility, because the same constellation of, of uh, root causes that contribute to type 2 diabetes and type 3 diabetes also contribute to fertility challenges. So when we are doing this work in the primester, to improve our fertility and to make our super babies, we're also ensuring our own longevity and there are scientific data to show that and also the longevity of the next generations. These epidemics that we face today were put in motion by our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation in the primester. So we want, people ask me all the time, can I just have sex and get pregnant? It's the most natural thing in the world. Why wouldn't I do that if I'm not having fertility challenges? And my answer to that is you can, you can totally do what everybody else is doing and just have sex and get pregnant and don't do any primestering, any preparation. And yet we see where doing what everybody else is doing has landed us. We as a society are incredibly unhealthy. And so we really want to intercept those processes so that future generations don't continue this this path of unhealthiness, but instead get back to our nature of being fertile, of being healthy. Mm. And how much is diet and nutrition in that? Yes, they're huge. So I would say the top two epigenetic inputs are number one, thoughts, and number two, nutrition. So both micronutrients and macronutrients. Wow. I'm actually shocked by thoughts. Yes. I know it's powerful. Like we live it, but it's like to affect your gene expression. That's pretty profound that it's top two. It is. Yeah, that's like Dr. Joe Dispenza stuff, yes. you know, like, yes. yeah, that's- 100%. Yeah, and it just makes me think about the grace that we could have for ourselves when our gene expression is currently what our parents thought. Yes. You know. So true. It's like, oh, there's a lot that, and even I'll catch myself, sometimes I'll say something I'm like, whoa, who was that? <laughs> <laughs> who was that? That was not me. <laughs> and you can be like, oh, that's, I'm, I just tried that on and that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And even- something I've been saying or something I was saying this past weekend with a friend, I was talking about getting married in May, which is really beautiful. Yes. So, and then, um, but with that, I think about, you know, having kids eventually. And it's such a weird thing. I was like, I realized I was being my teenage self where I was like, I feel (laughs) like if I have kids, I'm just going to be, I'm going to lose myself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I have kids, I'm going to, I don't know. I just imagine it being, yeah, having to like retire my life. And I think what you said is so beautiful where you were like, it helped me become more of myself. Yeah. 
And I was saying that in the moment and I was like, oh, this is actually me in high school. Mm-hmm. I was actually, that was my thought in high school, mm-hmm. but it's actually not my thought anymore. You yeah. know, I was like, oh, wow, that was, when I was saying that, I was like, that's actually not the version of me that exists today mm-hmm. that yeah. has those beliefs. Yes, it's so powerful. I think a lot of people walk around with that belief, especially women who maybe wait until a little bit later to get married, to have children and have focused on career and legacy and that kind of thing, because you know, you've poured a lot into what you do. So then you wonder, how will I have enough to pour into myself and to pour into my children? And and it does take a lot of pouring into our children. I, I mean, we have three super babies and we pour a ton into each one of them. And I think there are a lot of women walking around with that thought, I'm going to lose myself. And really all I can say is from my own experience and from having walked now with so many women and families that you can also find yourself. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, it's not it's not the responsibility or job of my hubby or my super babies to heal me, but they heal me so mm. profoundly, so mm. profoundly. Every pain I have ever known is basically washed away by the love I experience with them. Mm. It's true. The the pleasure piece and the sensual piece as a foundation is really interesting. Mm-hmm. What is that mean beyond, so I know you mentioned it releases or kind of um, pulls you out of that fight or flight or stress state, which is so important. Are there other aspects of that that improve your fertility? Absolutely. So that's a number one, that it pulls us out of fight or flight, which is so important. And remember the parts of the brain that are involved in reproduction are also involved in safety. So we have to be able to send the signal to our brain that we are safe that there are enough resources to keep us alive and healthy and to also produce another life and grow another life. So that's that's the most important thing I would say. But in addition to that, there are some really direct pathways from our pleasure to making our super babies. For example, we know that for people who are experiencing fertility challenges, or maybe they've just made the decision that they want to make their baby and it hasn't happened as quickly as they thought, that suddenly sex can become very stressful, very mechanic, very robotic. And we really want people to come back to the energy of that that love and that ecstasy and that sexiness. And that's really the energy that creates our super babies. It's the energy that creates our babies. And we know that when women have orgasms, that the the activation in their brain changes. And there was even a small study that showed that women who orgasm regularly have a shorter time to conception. And it is possible also that when we orgasm, that it helps to propel the, the, there are these uterine contractions, powerful contractions that happen with female orgasm, and that these contractions help to propel the sperm forward on the microscopic superhighways that are produced by our fertile cervical fluid, which means that it makes it easier for the sperm to make this really long journey to the egg. It's actually a long, hard journey that the sperm make to the egg. Mm. So anything that we do that facilitates that will help to facilitate conceiving as well. Mm. On the sperm piece, do you have to test your partner's sperm if if you're experiencing like failed attempts? 
to get pregnant? Like Mm -hmm. how do you test the sperm or? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's a, a really important thing to do. So you can do a sperm and semen analysis and it will give you basic health parameters of the sperm. There are some more involved things you can do, like look at DNA fragmentation and other things. But the most basic thing to do, the starting place, if you're experiencing fertility challenges and you're trying to identify what might be going on is to do a, a workup for yourself and then a sperm and semen analysis for your partner if you have a male partner. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, hormones and birth control. Yeah. So there's a few questions from the community that I even want to know about. I think I have my own opinion, but I need, <laughs> I need a professional one. Um, so does getting off birth control pills earlier in life help increase fertility later? Like what's birth control's effect on fertility? It's a really interesting question. So if I had to answer that question, I, my my short answer would be yes. And there are a lot of reasons why. So first of all, we know that there are a lot of short and long-term consequences of hormonal birth control. And they include things like insulin resistance and depression and or risk for those things. It doesn't mean that everybody mm-hmm. will will get them. But both of those things can affect our fertility. So that's just one example. But there's one universal symptom of being on hormonal birth control that does affect our fertility, which is that hormonal birth control masks what our body would do naturally. Therefore, we have no idea what's really going on inside of our body. Our our cycles are a vital sign like our temperature, like our heart rate. And for every other vital sign that we have, we start measuring them as soon as they become available to us. What's the first thing that we do when we get pregnant? We go to the doctor, we have an ultrasound and we listen for the heartbeat, right? And the heartbeat tells us how the baby's doing right off of the bat. So as soon as a vital sign becomes available, we start measuring it. As soon as your baby's born, they'll start taking your baby's temperature. And we don't do that with this incredible vital sign that is our menstrual cycle as females. And I, my dream is that everyone will start to pay attention to their this vital sign as soon as it becomes available to them. And they'll learn what their body is trying to tell them through this vital sign. So when we're on hormonal birth control, what's happening is that it looks like we have a 28-day cycle and it looks like everything's perfect. And it's almost every day that somebody comes to me and says, Dr. Cleopatra, I have had my entire life a 28-day cycle. And now that I am off of birth control and I want to get pregnant, my cycle's all wonky. And I say to them, but that wasn't your cycle. That was a an artificial cycle that was being created for you. So you never got to see what was happening with your body. You never got to see if your cycles would have been shorter or longer, or maybe, I I mean, I am 28 days like clockwork and naturally, and I've been that way. And at the age of almost 43, I have the same exact cycle that I had in my 20s. And I know that because I've been measuring my fertility and my cycles for all this time, which is why I know that if I decide to have super baby number four, if my hubby will let me, that more than likely I'm going to conceive on the first try like I did with the first three. So it's really important that we are able to have this information about our bodies. So that's 
a universal symptom of hormonal birth control. You do not know what your body is doing on its own. And there's critical information there for you. If nothing else, you want to start collecting data on your body to understand how long is your cycle. That means the first day of your period until the day before your period starts again. Day one is the first day of your period. How long are you? is your period? How long are you bleeding? Most people tell me that that's how long their cycle is, how long they have their period. So how long is that? You're looking for something around four to five days in terms of the amount of time that you have your period, that you're bleeding. You're looking for a cycle ideally between 25 and 35 days. Anything under... 21 days is something to definitely pay attention to because more than likely you have a short luteal phase, which may mean a progesterone deficiency. If you don't have a sufficient luteal phase and sufficient progesterone, it's impossible to get pregnant and stay pregnant. Mm -hmm. These are all things that that we want to know. And these things start shifting much earlier in life than we realize. So already by the time we're in our late 20s and early 30s, we can be experiencing some significant shifts in these things. So the earlier we start to measure these things, we can see when a big change is occurring that might tell us, hey, this is something that I maybe should be doing sooner in life than I had planned. Because the worst thing that could happen is that you wake up one day and you are desiring, you're yearning for a baby. Because let me tell you, when it's it's hard to see it before you get to the point in your life when you're ready for a baby. But when you get to the moment where you want a baby, it is all you can think about. There's like no desire that you have ever had that is mm. comparable to this. And if you get to that point and it's not happening for you, it's really one of the most painful things that could happen for a woman and and for any human. And so if we just start paying attention earlier, we can prevent that we ever end up at that place. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's my dream world where this never happens to people. I think I, I this year have tapped into a really outrageous desire of my own that even with all the work that I do, And for how long I've done it, I couldn't have anticipated, which is that I love having super babies so much that I may want to have another wave of children in 10 to 15 years. Mm. My hubby thinks I'm completely crazy, but (laughs) I thought you were going to be like, I'm going to be a surrogate for people. (laughs) No No way. (laughs) No way. I was like, wow, she's revealing it on our show. (laughs) So you're saying that, so you are 43? I'm 43. So, you know, are, are you are you working again? Like, I don't know much about the bi- biology of our our bodies as we age in terms of reproduction. I know, like, from what I hear, it's like okay, it gets you know less and less likely that you're going to get pregnant. But are you saying that we can slow the aging process our of our reproductive system and like? push off menopause a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I am saying that. So we absolutely through primestering are helping to reverse our reproductive age. That's one of the things we're doing. And so you asked me before, how far in advance should we start primestering? So at minimum, we want to start primestering 120 days in advance of conceiving. So four months before we want to get pregnant. 
But the longer we primester, the better because there is a dose response relationship of primestering to outcomes. So ideally we're primestering for a year before getting pregnant. If we know that, you know, we're going to want to have a baby maybe two years from now, that's a great time to start primestering. Most people who come to us wanted their baby 10 years ago or 10 mm. months ago. Mm. They are they are not going to primester for a year. Most people primester for 120 days. So there is there is the ability to do that. And we know that. We see people every day who look so much younger than their biological age, right? We know that from an overall aging process. Well, the same is true. There's a parallel process for our reproductive aging. It's just if we could go in and, and look at them, which we kind of can do from blood tests and things like that. And we see every day that people are reversing their reproductive age with the primester. That being said, the reason why I shared this desire is because I, even with my incredible fertility, because of the work I do, because I basically live my life in the primester, primester life just is my life and it has been for a long time. Do I expect that I can have another three to four children in 10 to 15 years and conceive them naturally? I don't know. I mean, it's not impossible. The oldest verified natural conception was to a 59-year-old woman. If she can, I probably can, mm -hmm. but I I wouldn't leave that to chance. So if I decide that I'm really going to move forward with that plan, which as of right now, I don't know, I, what I may do is freeze embryos so that I can have another wave of three or four children in 10 to 15 years if I really want to do that. The point is to really get clear about what it is that we want for ourselves mm -hmm. and not try to control everything because we can't control everything, nor would we want to. Life is full of beautiful surprises and that's part of the beauty of living. But just like I said in the beginning, when there's something that really matters to us, we do some planning for it. We don't try to control everything, but we do some planning and prep for it. And we absolutely want to do that for having the life and the family of our dreams. And it's really hard to have the life of our dreams if we don't have the family of our dreams. It's it's not impossible, but it's definitely much harder. So if that's something that I really want to follow through with, then it's something that I'll plan for. I probably will still try to get pregnant naturally at that time, but I wouldn't leave that up to chance if that's like a real desire that I want to move forward with. Mm. It's so interesting when you were talking and you said it's so hard to have the life of our dreams if we don't have the family of our dreams. I almost like in my mind, I was like, oh, I, I think... And this isn't like, it's it's not distorted thinking, but I'm like, oh, it's hard to have the family of my dreams if I want to have the life of my dreams. Yeah. Like I think the opposite. Yeah. Which is like just programming, but- um, So interesting. I know, isn't it? Because I'm like, well, how would I have, you know, there is still the thought of like, how do you have both? Yeah. I feel like I have both. Yes, and, you do. And I feel, and not that my life is perfect or I am perfect, but- my life is so much better now than it was before I was married with children. And I had a really good life. I mean, the first two and a half decades of my life were rocky as anything. I'm not going to lie. Like that was- I had so much school. Yeah, it was no joke to have that beginning to life that were, you know, and then I was getting mm -hmm. my PhD, doing my postdoc, being, I was the first woman of color to be hired on the tenure track in my school at USC. That stuff is not for the faint of heart. I was mm -hmm. about to say a bad word right there. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just telling it's you. Okay. That, it's a kid's show. That, yeah. was, that was not, it was not easy. Yes. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it was all uh, 
it was rosy in yes. any way. And I, I was working really hard. I mean, our community knows we calculated for my book proposal. I've spent over 80,000 hours of my life developing and testing and refining the Primester protocol. I have been heads down, hard working, but So my life was still good even through all of that because I was so driven by this mission. When you have when you have that purpose, that passion, Mm -hmm. it wakes you up, it keeps you up, you're you're on fire. It's awesome. So life was life was rocky, but it was meaningful. And I would say that having met my hubby and having our super babies, like there's been nothing better in the world. So yes, there's not a lot of sleep and Maybe you don't have quite as much time for grooming and working out. <laughs> I think you look. I think you look amazing. <laughs> I literally am over here, like <laughs> I'm like same. Yeah, honestly, no kids. No, no. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you guys are so beautiful. No, it's uh, it. I mean, things change, but the the things that are most fun and most meaningful. And I think sometimes we think of meaningful and fun as opposing one another, Mm -hmm. but in family life, they go really well together. I will say that there's one way in which it's really hard to have the life of your dreams when you have your family. And that's if and only if you have your family with someone who doesn't turn out to be a good friend to you. Mm. And I'm so thankful that I do not have this experience. And I waited a long time to choose my hubby for this reason, because I have walked so closely with so many couples. I have seen how Mm. painful and miserable it is to raise children with someone you don't get along with Mm. very well. And so that for sure, is an instance in which it's very difficult to have the life of your dreams when you have a family. But I think if we can go into that with our eyes wide open, I did not have to learn the hard way. I was totally fine observing and learning from watching other people. I was not somebody who had to get caught up in a bunch of bad relationships. I'm very thankful for that, actually. And I, I, it's because of this work that I do that I got to have those lessons without learning the hard way. So for anybody who's listening, who's choosing their partner right now, or who is still in the wait for their life partner or looking for their life partner or just allowing mm-hmm. their life partner, whatever it may be, I think that what I would say is, you date out in the open. And the reason why I would say that is because dating out in the open allows a light to be shine on the the relationship and mm-hmm. on how well it's working. It's so easy when it's all passion and pheromones and, you know, for everything to look fine. And it's a really different kind of relationship. There's still a lot of passion and pheromones in a marriage, but it's very different when you're you're in it for the long mm-hmm. haul. You know, you're you're waking up a million times at night. You're you're you have toddlers who are up and down and up and down. I mean it's it changes the nature of the relationship. And the thing that sustains you is when you're really good friends and you have fun together and you don't have negative impulses toward one another. And what I mean by that is you you know each other's weaknesses and you don't, because you live together, you share so intimately and you you have no impulse to, to press on them. You have no impulse to hurt the person. And 
I'm a super sensitive person and I think it would be very difficult for me to be in a marriage with somebody who had any impulse to to press on my sensitivities. And I'm so thankful. I have a hubby who's like, every flaw I have, he makes him love me more. And that makes me feel so safe. Mm-hmm. I think you also receive it. You know, you receive, you're like, oh, I, I love that you love me that way. You know, there's yes. the receiving of that too. I yes. think that's really important. So true. Mm-hmm. So true. And and I think that's a, a really big part of it because you can be presented with that amazing, beautiful mm-hmm. love and not be good at mm-hmm. allowing yourself mm-hmm. to receive it. And then it's, it's equally not happy, right? Mm-hmm. It's a good point. Such a good point. Last question for me. I'd mm-hmm. love to know like the spiritual aspect of this whole process. And, you know, are there certain practices that you recommend for your patients or what have you learned in your research as far as how that supports? Such a good question. It's been a really big part of my research, actually. And you can imagine that what that's not super popular with the scientific community, but it's a really important thing. And what clued me into this was really early in my career, in my probably mid-20s, around the age of 25, I started to notice that we we had all this beautiful science. And yet there was a difference between the people who put the scientific tools, the primester into action and had a strong belief and the people who put it into action, but who were just kind of going through the motions because they didn't have a strong belief. And I don't mean specifically a belief Mm -hmm. in God or a higher power or faith of, of a particular kind. I just mean having faith in themselves, having faith in the timing of their lives, having faith in the timing of their super babies, having faith in their body's ability to do what is natural, having faith that their bodies aren't broken, that their lives aren't broken. I just saw that there was this difference and I knew that there was a piece missing in what was then the version of the Primester Protocol. We called it in bloom at the time, actually. And I went to, I don't know if you're familiar with Kundalini Yoga Mm -hmm. and it's, I love it so much. I went to study with Gurmukh Mm -hmm. and I studied prenatal Kundalini Yoga with Gurmukh, who's this amazing teacher. Mm -hmm. And I went there before I did my dissertation for this purpose of being able to incorporate um, more spiritual practices into what we do. So today uh, we we do so much Kundalini as part of the Primester Protocol. We have some, some foundational meditations and mantras that we use. In fact, I'd love to share the, this one with you and we encourage people to use it if they've experienced miscarriage or they're just feeling any sort of grief or impatience or sadness with themselves or toward themselves. It's called Bountiful, Beautiful, Blissful. And it goes like this. And actually my daughter is is named after this prayer or, or meditation. I am the light of my soul. I am bountiful. I am beautiful. I am bliss. I am, I am, I am. And I've been saying this prayer to myself since I learned it then now I can't believe almost 20 years ago. And really anytime I'm frustrated with myself, I if I have a negative thought about myself, which I'm really grateful to be able to say doesn't happen very often anymore. And certainly not ones that I believe. Mm-hmm. And I anytime, anytime I've been 
frustrated with any circumstance in my life. And we teach our mamas to use it. So that's one thing. We also do satanama kriya for healthy reproduction. And really, we just encourage our mamas and couples and families to, to have faith in themselves to have faith in the timing of their lives and to have faith in the timing of their super babies because it's really frustrating when it doesn't happen the way we imagined or exactly on the timeline that we imagined. But what we know from our work is that there's almost always a way. There's almost always a way. So if we can find a way to love ourselves and to be patient in the moment when we know that something is for sure coming and happening for Mm. us, then we can afford to be patient. And so I think really the spiritual practice is just so much about finding that, that, that belief that this thing is on its way. The thing that I want wants me to, and I can really just soften into being in my life because If you think about it, everything that we want in life, including our super babies, we want because we we imagine the feeling that it's going to give us. We're going to feel so much love. We're going to be feel so complete. We're going to feel so much joy and happiness. What if we could feel those things and already have those feelings? even before we actually have our super baby in our arms, that energy is really powerful for mm-hmm. for allowing our bodies to be receptive and out of fight or flight and, and in our pleasure so that we can receive our super babies. Mm. So beautiful. I love that. I'd love to end on a little <laughs> spiritual moment. This has been so beautiful. So I'm grateful. so impressed by you and so grateful for Thank you, your work and you're so expanding to me. This was like so helpful and right on time. I'm so happy yeah. and I'm so happy to have spent this time with you. It's been really fun. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much. And where can people connect with you and uh, connect with your work? Come to fertilitypregnancy.org. That's the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute website. We have lots of great free resources there, including the Ultimate Fertility Checklist. Start using, working this checklist. It's free and the, the things in it are free. Start working it as early as you want. It doesn't have to be right now that you want to have a baby. Start learning about primestering and priming your body and and mind and soul for being ready for your super baby. And I even did, I got more into the primester when I knew I was ready for my life partner. And I... I, it just magnetized my hubby. Really? Yeah. yeah. So if you haven't met your person yet and you you want to meet your person, get in that energy. That fertile energy is okay. really true. powerful That's for, true. for mm-hmm. partnering too. So I, I highly recommend it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate feminine. So yeah. okay, we'll have that in the show notes, yes. you guys. Um, all right. We love you so much. Love you. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Cleopatra. Again, that is Dr. Cleopatra. She is a fertility strategist and executive director at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. Fertilitypregnancy.org for more information. And again, not everyone out there is wanting to have children, but if you do know someone who's been struggling with fertility or just wants to learn more um, about the primester and making a super baby, just pass this episode along to them. We would really, really appreciate it. 
Yeah, make sure you're subscribed to Almost 30. We have episodes that come out every Tuesday and Thursday. We talk about spirituality, health, and wellness, all the things that support you in your evolution. My name is Krista and my Instagram is It's Krista. And I am Lindsay and I'm at Lindsay Simsic. And we just want to thank our sponsors for this episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you for um, checking out these sponsors, all brands that we love and use ourselves. And it really helps us to do what we do and provide free content for you all. So thank you today to Element, Function of Beauty, Woo More Play, and Manscaped. So you can find discount information in our show notes as well as on almost30.com. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.